Hey guys, welcome to episode 95 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope, as always, that you're all doing well, and we're excited to bring you another episode of craziness. But before we started, we just wanted to say thank you, as we always do, because it is so important to thank you for all that you do for us, because honestly, no matter how long we've been doing this, it still amazes us that people like us. <laughs> I know, right? It, it is a little shocking. I do find myself kind of like, you know, you look at Instagram or you look at anywhere else where people are leaving comments and stuff, and it's like, wow. And reviews. People still like us. That's a good sign. <laughs> yes. So we just want to say thank you, and we appreciate that all. We also wanted to thank everyone who has joined our Patreon page and have become patrons of the show. So we're going to be thanking them at the end of this episode. And I hope that I pronounce everyone's name right because I have been practicing. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know what? I'm glad you are because I, unfortunately, no matter how hard I try, I just can't do it. I don't know why. <laughs> okay. So are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Today's case has many layers to it. A rich man who has been living a lie his whole life finally tries to seek happiness. However, the intentions of that pursuit are not as pure as they may seem, and they'll lead to the loss of millions of dollars, several relationships, and a brutal murder three days after Christmas in a very wealthy gated community. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. We joined the Olds family in the summer of 1989. At that point, Dean and Suzanne had been married for 35 years. They had met at her sister's wedding. They both were in the wedding party and connected instantly over the fact that they both attended Northwestern University. Well, at the time, Suzanne was actually still attending the college. It was her senior year, and Dean, a little bit older than her, had already moved on to the University of Michigan, where he was earning his law degree. The couple married shortly after Suzanne graduated. She went on to teach public school for a few years, and Dean eventually became a patent lawyer. After three years, they decided to start a family. Suzanne would stop working to care for the three children that they would eventually have, two girls and one boy. Dean would go on to be wildly successful in his trademark patent field, although I don't know if like the word wild and patent attorneys have ever existed in the same sentence, but um, he was, and it was actually one of the biggest trademark infringement cases that he was a part of. He represented a company in Vermont who was like a drink company, and they sued Gatorade for a slogan that Gatorade was using because they had already trademarked it. And the company that is like, that Umbrella's Gatorade actually had to pay somewhere around $49 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah, especially in like the early 90s. That's crazy. I mean, that is pretty crazy. I mean, you have to think though, like either side, well, I should say both sides have like, um, you know, their own lawyers and stuff like that. You would think that Gatorade would have maybe looked into that beforehand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it was just a little, it was something about like drink well. 
And it was only like a part of this bigger slogan that they had. But drink well was something that this Vermont company had already trademarked. So they got a lot of money from that. I think probably more from any of the drinks that they sold. (laughs) (laughs) And that is something that's actually still being appealed today, I guess, because of the amount of money that it, it, it was. So that was something that was under Dean's belt. And that is how the Olds family, who came from really humble beginnings, were millionaires by the early 90s. Wow. I mean, that is pretty impressive, right? I mean, that's what you hope for. I mean, you go to school, you're going, you know, Michigan Law School. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. That's what you strive for, right? I mean, that's that's right. the lucky break that most people want to get. Yeah, and now he's this, like, hotshot patent attorney. I mean, whenever you, cr- like, get the biggest settlement in your field of law, I mean, you got to be, like, a rock star, I guess. Yeah, you're the patent attorney, like... Law rock star, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> So the family lived in the beautiful town of Wilmette, Illinois, which sits on the North Shore of Chicago. Its beautiful beaches on Lake Michigan and historical homes make it a very wealthy area to live in. It seems like the perfect place for a wealthy professional. It seemed like the perfect place for wealthy professional families that worked in Chicago because it was really close to the city, but when you look through like the houses for sale, the beaches, the quiet streets, it really seems like suburban paradise. So that's always when you're going to see sky, like prices skyrocket because you have suburbia, but then you're 15 minutes away from a major city like Chicago. So, oh, and if there's beaches, come on. I mean, that's a pretty good deal, right? It's everything all in one. Yeah, but it's going to be super expensive. Oh, yeah. So I actually looked up the house where the Olds lived, and I found it on Zillow. It was a five-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath house, 4,600 square feet. That's big. You could fit four of our houses in (laughs) in their house. I know. That's crazy. (laughs) It's crazy to think that. Um, Hey. Now, we thought our taxes in New Jersey were bad, but I guess people around the greater Chicago area have it the same. Their taxes, well, now, if you were to purchase this home, $31,000 a year. What? For their taxes. 31000 Yes. I mean, I, listen, let's just be honest. For rich people, that's just a, you know, a drop in the bucket. I, know, I mean, but, but to us, like, it's like, That's whoa. my take-home salary from teaching. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy. So they bought that house in 1977. So obviously, like, you know how it gives you the history of the house. Obviously, the house cost a lot less in 1977. And it's appreciated, especially because there was this surge within the town. They brought in a country club. There was a golf course. So, of course, home prices are going to skyrocket. But it just shows you that they did have a a home that was worth now by the time it's the 90s over a million dollars so they, they're they really doing pretty well for themselves they only purchased it for 180 in 1977 i mean that that right there right is i mean if you sell if you sell that what a quick turnaround i mean you quadrupled even more than quadrupling yeah. your money and you're just you know you're living you're living high and you're making money on top of that i like, know and you, you're you're suing gatorade so like yeah he's flying high right now <laughs> Um, 
And then, of course, I mean, this is a spoiler alert. Someone gets murdered. And um, the house actually sells six years after the murder. So I guess they had to wait until that all settled down until they could sell that. Oh, oh. that property again. So I need to know more because even if I had the money, wouldn't be buying it. John, we go through this all the time. If there was a million dollar house and someone was murdered in it and we could get it for like 400,000, you would not buy it. No. I think that's at cra- all. I think that's crazy. You know what? I I think uh, we could get past it. Like no. someone probably died in this house right now that we're sitting in. I don't care. Probably a few people. You it know what? It was built in 1950. I know, you know what? I don't I don't care. Because it's one thing if you don't know or, you know, someone just peacefully passed away. Someone probably died where you're sitting right now. Uh, you know what? Okay. But you know what? The fact that there is so much energy attached to... If there if the murder did take place in the house, yes. I'm assuming it did, and we haven't even got into it yet. But if that did happen, I I feel like that's really bad energy. It's very negative energy in your home. Yeah. And I don't like that juju. I guess juju. that's true. You know what I mean? Even... People even get deterred from buying homes if they know that the couple that is living in it currently is going through a divorce. It's true. I mean, that is true. It's a fact. It's so crazy, but it's true. It's like it's such bad juju. Yeah. So, I mean, there's differences. I don't know. I think I would do, I think I would do it. Well, I wouldn't be in there with you, but I still love you. <laughs> you could live in, like, my guest house. It has a guest house? It does. Well, then I'll be living in the guest house. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, on the outside, the olds looked like they had the perfect life. But the inside of large, expensive homes usually don't reflect their flawless exteriors. The couple had drifted apart, and the harder Dean worked, the more he drank. He also had chosen a new business to invest in, which was complicating things with his wife slightly. While in New York City, three years prior... 1986, Dean had met a German man while at a bar. The man was struggling with his English, and it had been really hard for the bartender to hear him. And Dean actually had many German friends and contacts because he did business in Germany, and he did work for a German company. So he did know a little bit of German. And just as like a strangest side, um, the friends of Dean Olds and his family members are going to say that he actually really liked German culture and he felt like the Germans, like he liked the way the Germans carried themselves in business more than the Americans did. That's interesting. That was just like a thing that he had. So he really enjoyed German culture. So when he saw this man struggling, he chose to help him out and kind of interpret for him with the bartender. And the two of them struck up a conversation. They talked the entire night. And by the end, the man, whose name is Helmut Karsten Hofer, who was really 20 years old, and he went by his middle name, Karsten, had convinced Dean that he should invest in his business. Well, what was his business? A chauffeur and limousine service in Hamburg, Germany. He said that there was such a demand for the service there that if someone were to start up the market, they would have so much business that they would book straight through the year. Dean told Karsten that he was in, but he wanted to be a silent partner in his business. But 
there was another reality to it all. Dean was not just impressed by the business proposal of the very attractive Karsten. He was impressed by him. For his whole life, Dean had kept a secret from his friends and his family. He was gay. He had chosen to marry a woman and have a family and live a perfect North Shore existence because that was what a wealthy attorney was supposed to do in the 1980s. He also wanted to remain with his family. And when he got married and he had children, he knew that he was going to have to put his own needs aside and raise his children. And he knew that not only coming out, but also leaving his wife might have long-lasting effects on his three children, whom he loved very much. So he chose to wait for his children to leave the house. And at this point in the late 1980s, his children were completely grown, married, and out of the house. So he figured that now was the time to kind of be honest with himself and about his sexuality and his feelings for men. But at the same time, he still wasn't being honest with his wife. So he is going to carry on an affair with Karsten, but keep this from his wife. And at this point, she still believes that he's only investing in a business proposal in Hamburg, Germany, and not that he's in a relationship with Karsten Hoffer, who is just under 40 years his junior. Wow. I mean, if I was the wife, I mean, well, you know, it's hey, hard for hey, the wife can, to... Yeah, be the wife. <laughs> Listen, I'm just saying, <laughs> it's hard to be the wife and like, you know think anything's going on right i mean because he's kept he's obviously kept this a secret and very well i might add right because i mean no one knows so i mean it's like what do you do i mean what else can you think i mean unless he was showing other signs that something else was going on right i mean we don't know about his we don't know if he had previous affairs but it doesn't seem like there were any signs or indications that there was any infidelity in the old marriage. But again, that's something that people do keep very private. So we're unaware of that. And we do know that in the beginning of Dean and Karsten's relationship, that was kept a secret from Suzanne and she had no clue about it. She just thought Karsten was a man who owned a chauffeur business in Hamburg in which Dean was investing in. So it was uh, very hard for Dean to like not give in to Karsten. I mean, he's this six foot four blonde former model in a bar, you know, and that night he entered into a business and personal relationship with him. And Dean said that Karsten sparked something within him because he felt really bad for him. He felt a connection with Karsten, but he was also in awe of him because Karsten did come out at the age of 15 and he left home because of it. Um, When he did come out to his family and schoolmates about being gay, he was not accepted by anyone. So he ended up dropping out of school and leaving the city that he grew up in. And he got part-time jobs and lived in various cities throughout Germany, including Hamburg and Munich. And Dean admired his honesty and his ability to be truthful with himself and with others. But he also identified with the struggle 
of of being gay at a time when it wasn't as accepted as it is today. So he was just kind of in awe of everything that Carson could do at such an early age and how comfortable he was with himself because I don't think Dean was yet comfortable in his own skin. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, it really is. I mean, and I think that's what also amplifies the attraction to him. Right. Is that the, that he's able to be who he is. He's been able to overcome the scrutiny of the people, the friends and family that, you know, were the closest to him. And for him to do all these things and move around just to kind of, you know, he's explored. He's been around. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I he's think almost like, done more yeah. in his five years of living solo and and being self-reliant than Dean has kind of done his whole, his whole life. life. Right. Exactly. But it also shows what would have happened to Dean possibly if he lived a different life and and, and maybe was more open, if he was open about his sexuality, right? Because look what happened to the young gentleman, right? So it's like it could go either way. That could have happened to him too. Right. Well, I think that it's a little different because now here we have Dean who, Dean Old, who is right about ready to turn 60, so when Dean was 15 years old, he could have never even dreamed about coming out. Well, that's true, too. Whereas now it's the 1980s. So even though it's not as accepted as it was today, and, and you know, we're talking about the beginning of the AIDS crisis that took place in the world. So it still wasn't as accepted as it is today, but it was a little bit more in the public eye and people were fighting for gay rights. They were beginning to, but I mean, that's not something that was I mean, happening it, when Dean yeah. Olds was 15 and yeah, 20 years absolutely. old. I mean, I, I think it, it, well, it also shows we have really grown as a society, right? I mean, you go, you yeah. go from when Dean was 15 or whatever, how old he was to this gentleman, you know, it's like, it shows an evolution and it shows acceptance and the growth of acceptance right from back then to now so i mean that's a good thing right i mean because no one should ever feel that it's you know that, that you they're know, not accepted exactly well the relationship between these two men intensified quickly i think it's quite clear what's really going on here right although that it's i think it's wonderful that dean is being able to be truthful with himself i think he should be truthful with his wife because that's just the right thing to do. But at the same time, this relationship isn't as pure as it, you know, should be. Because it's a, it's a tale as old as crime, right? As we'd like to say. An older man with a lot of money finds someone who's young, beautiful, and in search of a father figure. And there you go. That was their setup. Right. So Dean loved to give money to Karsten for his chauffeur business. Karsten would explain to him that he needed money to rent the expensive cars that they would need. He told Dean that he had acquired two Mercedes Benzes and one Rolls Royce. But actually the Rolls Royce was purchased. They were on a vacation in Palm Springs and that's when they bought the Rolls Royce together and Dean paid for the car to be shipped actually to Germany. Oh wow. Yeah. So he also needed money to advertise and keep the cars clean and serviced. So Dean sent Karsten every cent that he asked for and he kept sending money. 
hundreds of thousands of dollars to Karsten without letting his wife know. Suzanne would only find out about his investments, as he would call them, after the money was already sent. Like this was never a discussion with her. Now, it's important to know that Suzanne, even though she wasn't working, she did work as a teacher for a few years. Her family came from money. So a lot of the wealth that the Olds family had came from inheritances of Suzanne's. Oh, okay. So Karsten did not feel bad about the sending of money and the deception of Suzanne. Rather, he did a wonderful job of explaining it to Dean that it was his money to give and not his wife's, so she should not have a say. But Dean was not the only person who was not being honest in this relationship. Karsten was as well. In reality, he did not have the cars that he said he did. Despite the fact that Dean had sent over $700,000 to Karsten within the first year, the only purchases that were made were for the one Rolls Royce that they got together for $56,000 and one Mercedes for $22,000. So where was the other $622,000 going? Well, it went to the lifestyle of Karsten, who was living in Hamburg, Germany, thousands of miles away from Dean. This is like a really, I feel like this is going to turn into a really bad scheme. Like it's already turning into something. I mean, like there is no business. These cars are just his. I feel like, I feel like he's just being so played right now. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what it feels like. But he's also, you know, playing his family. This $700,000. I mean, he does have three children that, you know, he's giving away his fortune. I mean, it's true, right? I mean, it is. And these people, I mean, you have to think of their current lifestyle in Chicago. Yeah, it's expensive to maintain. You have to, yeah. I mean, you need money to do that. I mean, you do. You just do. So you're giving away your money for you and your wife. I think the whole thing is he's just not being honest with his wife and what's really going on here. Yeah, because he's sending all this money. He's saying, okay, we're eventually going to get a return on this investment, but it's not happening. Um and the money situation with the olds is a little interesting because of a lot of it's tied up in different places, stocks, bonds, things like that. And it comes a time when they have to pay for one of their daughter's weddings, $60,000. And Dean has trouble coming up with the money because he's sent most of it to Karsten. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So that's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty rough. I mean, when you have kids... Your kids come first. Right. I, your, I agree uh, with that. You know. Boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> of course, when Dean would ask him about, you know, where's all this money going, Karsten would say that the cars needed to be repaired. He had to pay for advertisements up front. And Karsten began sending him bills and receipts. But the only problem was that um, Dean could never make sense out of them because he didn't read German. So he never knew what the receipts were for. I mean, what a, what a, <laughs> okay. So you have, okay, right? A language barrier is saving you right now. That receipt could just be like completely like, that receipt could be completely falsified. But because there's a language barrier and it's written in German, he can't, yeah. he really can't make any sense of it. He probably is sending like his clothing bills and yeah. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like you wouldn't know unless you had somebody to read German for you. Right. Well, at the same time, too, like, Dean trusts Karsten because he's in a romantic relationship with him. And we're also 
thinking that Dean's not in on this. But what if he is? What if he's trying to take money away from Suzanne and there's a plan being hatched? Mm. I mean, it could be. It could. It very well could be. Because if the couple gets divorced, all the money that is commingled gets split between the two of them. But if money is being siphoned somewhere, like a potential offshore account. I know, but I just, I feel like there has to be, I mean, yes, he is a lawyer, but he's a patent lawyer. But you would think that there is loopholes, but then there also has to be things that he is just responsible for. In in the United States, you know, like that's just the way right. it is. If you get divorced, your your assets are your assets, and they need to be divvied up or however. You yeah, know but I mean? if no most of your cash is gone, yeah, but there's still there's still proof of all the all the transactions being made. In You're ca- right in cash amounts, right? So yes, a lawyer can turn around and tell a judge, "Hey, look this this man has been taking this amount of money out and." saying it's for a business but it you know whatever you get what i'm saying like there's there's traces of the money yeah. being withdrawn with withdrawn so he, you know he would have to pay her or split that with her right. whatever he's pulling out or that would be subtracted from the splitting of the estate that they right. had together i mean yeah i mean listen at the end of the day here i mean it's they they would work out work out all the little details correct but, you know it's just that is weird to me that he would go to that kind of length to, like, secure a position in Germany somewhere. Well, over the next two years, Dean would send another $2.3 million to Karsten, making the total amount sent over in a period of three years $3 million. Now, this $3 million does include lavish vacations that the two took together, and the purchase of an apartment in Chicago, where Karsten was living now for most of the year. Dean, of course, was a frequent visitor to Karsten's apartment. There was a third man that they had as a business partner in this whole chauffeur business, and he kind of had taken over in Germany when Karsten came to the United States. And the man that was living in Germany was actually a Um, had dual citizenship because he was in the United States Army and he was stationed in Germany, but he decided to stay in Germany. Okay. So that was the man who was still in charge of the chauffeur business when Karsten came to the United States. Suzanne was, at this point, very upset about Dean's investment into the German chauffeur business. Her husband had promised her that they would begin to see a return soon. But there had been no returns. Dean had drained his family savings account on Karsten and the business, and he now had moved on to the couple's retirement account. This had been the final straw for Suzanne, who did have a clue as to what was really going on with her husband and his young business partner. She filed for divorce after 32 years of marriage, and as messy as things are going to get moving forward the one thing that Suzanne never did was tell her children about her husband's affair she told her husband that she would never betray him like that and that if he wanted to tell their children what had really happened or come out 
that she would allow him to do that and she would never do that to him. I mean, that's really commendable. I mean, yeah. I mean, especially with what he's done to her so far, you know, by taking her money, their money. Right. Um, and, you know, having an affair, period. Right. Right. Like, an affair is an affair. So it doesn't. Yeah. And she, but she still loved him. So. Well, I also think it's not she her She cared place. about him. It's also not her place to tell. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's more than just, oh, you know, mom and dad are getting divorced. Like, that's, there's a, obviously, there's a big reason why. And, but once again, she can't tell her children that. Yeah, that's not he her place. He needs to do that. Yeah. And she knew that. So that's what she, she always promised that she would keep their business out of his relationship with his children. But once again, I think that's a really big step for her to do that. Yeah, that's commendable. It doesn't always happen because I feel like sometimes children are brought in. It's also just hard to do as a as a human being. Yeah. When you feel like you're betrayed to not mm-hmm. want to come back and try to do something. Right. You know what I mean? You'd want to say, I didn't do anything wrong. It That's your a natural yeah. human and reaction. Even if you didn't mean to, I think the natural, like you said, natural reaction would be to do that. Like, you've hurt me. You've done this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to retaliate. And she didn't. Yeah. So that's... Um, it says a lot about yeah, Suzanne's it character. It does. So now this was a very contentious divorce, as you could imagine. Suzanne was upset not only because her husband had been having an affair, but because he had spent all of their savings and dipped into their retirement fund. If there was going to be anything left for their three children, she would clearly have to take it from Dean before he spent it. Suzanne was also scared because all of the money Dean was spending that he would start spending her own money. She also was nervous that because most of the the money that was left in the couple's name was really Suzanne's money. It was about a million dollars of stocks and bonds that she had inherited and also a family farmland in Monticello, New York. So Suzanne was a little bit nervous here. And although she wouldn't tell her children why, um, she did tell her family members why, and they kept it a secret as well. But she was nervous that if she stayed in her relationship with Dean, that he would find a way to either take that money from her, which she wanted to save for her children and her grandchildren, or she was nervous that Dean was going to kill her. Really? Oh, so she felt that way. She felt that way. Hmm. Because at this point... The couple weren't even spending holidays together. Dean was spending his Christmases, um, his New Year's, all with Karsten. So, like, they were kind of done as a couple for a while before this. So, even though she still loved her husband, she knew that he didn't love her. And she was nervous that to get to that money that he truly didn't have access to, that he would kill her. I mean, that's a good point. Because, I mean, look what people do under extreme circumstances when they need something. You know, people do crazy things. So, I mean, I guess she's not wrong. She's not. Right. And if, in reality, Dean has this relationship with Karsten in part because he's funding his lifestyle. And if that ends, the relationship might end. So, how desperate is this man to keep this relationship? Desperate people do desperate things. Right. The acquisitions and the communications between Dean, Suzanne, and their lawyers were vicious. Because of the stress of the divorce, Dean began to drink even more. 
most likely because this divorce meant that he was going to lose his family and his money, which meant potentially that he was going to lose his boyfriend as well. He was scared. So he was kind of quelling those fears with alcohol, which was something that he always used to do. Like he drank a lot when he was stressed. So it's just happening more and more now. Now, one move that Suzanne's lawyer is going to use had massive implications at Dean's law firm. Not only were all of Dean's tax returns requested, but so were all of his partners in the law firm. Now, this is allowed because Suzanne has the right to determine whether or not money had been hidden for her. Now, this is allowed because Suzanne has the right to determine whether or not money had been hidden from her and was not commingled on purpose. So like, for example, if Dean were to argue a case and a settlement came in, technically he could give it to another one of the partners and they could have held the money. So that's why they're requesting the tax returns of all the partners, just to make sure that all of the cases that were tried, the amount that was awarded was given properly to the right lawyer. Right. Okay, I understand. And that's why they're allowed to do that. So as you can imagine, this did not go over well with the partners of the law firm who worked very hard to keep their tax returns out of the proceedings. In addition, this was just an embarrassment to Dean. I mean, nobody wants to have their personal life be dragged into their professional life. And again, Dean drank even more. Yeah, but you know what? You know what the kicker is here? He has already done something that you probably should never do, which is get involved in a business venture and then also get into a relationship with a future business partner. So it's like this is not like new for him. Like this is not like, um, you know, like he's he's doing things he probably shouldn't do. So like his partners here, I mean, what are they, you know, they must know something. I'm just saying like they have to know something's going on here. Like, I'm talking yeah. about with his wife and him. I mean, it happens. I mean, if you're in a partnership in a law firm with somebody, you kind of know, you know, I'm saying they probably go to barbecues and hang out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't find this. Like, this isn't shocking for the yeah, partners. no. Yeah. No, I understand that. Well, another thing that didn't look good for the practice is the fact that the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, ordered Dean to pay the government $125,000 because he had used a client's information for insider trading. That's bad. This guy's screwing bad up all over the place. Bad practices all over the place. So not only were the tax returns requested, which they didn't like, Dean is now being sued, which reflects very poorly on the practice, and he's drinking heavily. So because of all of these things, Dean was fired from the law firm. Wow. So now four years after his meeting with Karsten, Dean Olds found himself unemployed, broke, and living by himself in a downtown Chicago apartment with Karsten. But life was hard for them because the money that had always been there no longer was. Dean's assets had been frozen because of the divorce. Suzanne claimed, and I think the claims were valid, that her husband was making unreasonable decisions with their commingled money. The freeze was granted by a judge, and at that point, Dean was living off a monthly allowance that Suzanne was sending to his lawyer to give to him. Wow. The tables have turned. <laughs> the trial for the divorce was supposed to take place in January of 1994. 
However, it would never get to happen because on December 28, 1993, a murder was reported. Suzanne Old's daughter had been trying to get in touch with her mother, but she wasn't getting a response. She sent her husband to check on her. And when he arrived at her home on Ramona Court, he found her in the garage. Suzanne had been bludgeoned to death. He called 911 to report the murder. When first responders got there, they notified dispatch that the woman was dead on arrival and that a crime scene analysis team should come in because it was very evident that Suzanne had been murdered. So that makes me sad because this woman knew that something could happen to her, right? And it did. And it did. And all she was trying to do was to leave some sort of inheritance for her children and grandchildren, right? And she was still being, although the divorce was vicious, she was still being respectful to her husband. Oh, 100%. And are you ready for this heartbreaking detail? Oh, no. All right. Yeah, I am. She was still wearing her wedding ring. Oh, Oh, my God. It's just a kick to the gut, man. You know, it's just like, and and the worst part about this is, it's like the police are going to go into this and go, okay, let's go find, uh, let's go find Dean. Because I mean, there's massive red yeah, flag, massive here. red flag. I mean, you know, I mean, you shouldn't even do that because you already know what's going to happen. They're going to suspect you right away. I mean, you're the husband, you're the ex-husband. You're pretending like he hasn't been making bad choices. No, you're right. You're right. Years. No, I know. I mean, I've been calling it out. I mean, <laughs> his business practices, the way he carries on with his relationships. Yeah. I mean, all the money he's everything. wasting. Everything. Suzanne's children were devastated when they heard that their mother had been murdered. When detectives spoke with them, they asked the question all detectives do. Did your mother have any enemies that might have wanted to hurt her? Yes, they said emphatically. Our father. Suzanne and Dean's oldest daughter told the detectives that her mother had been very fearful of her father because she was keeping money from him. Money that he was used to having. And she actually had become paranoid. She wouldn't sleep without checking the locks multiple times. And when she walked the dog, she would take pepper spray. And it's actually interesting is that when she had been murdered, she was going out to the garage to get the pepper spray to walk her dog. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, let's be honest here. There's there's never been a more clear motive to kill someone and the detectives felt as if they had been handed the identification of the murderer so it seemed like dean olds had the strongest motives that any suspect could possibly have so they are of course going to question him first and that's when they find out about the relationship with carson because remember the children don't know about that yet yeah right they don't That's actually a good point. So Dean, of course, admitted his relationship with Karsten to them. And he stated that he had had a very uneventful night. At that point, Karsten was no longer living with Dean. We're going to get into uh, what their relationship was more like. It's it's not as picturesque as, as one would think. So Dean said that that night he had a small dinner, either a TV dinner or McDonald's. And then Karsten came over to borrow his car. 
He said after Karsten left, he had a lot of wine, and then he went to bed between 10.30 and 11 p.m. The police noticed a few things about Dean's living arrangements. His new apartment was a far cry from the luxury that his former Wilmette home exuded, and he was seemingly obsessed with Karsten Hoffer because his pictures were all over the apartment, like all over the apartment. They determined, though, that Karsten no longer lived there. And this was all very interesting to the detectives that, you know, the man that he basically left his family for isn't living there, but he's still obsessed with him. And I think these are this is one of those occasions where when the detectives go to Dean Old's apartment, they get all of their information from what they're seeing versus what they're hearing. Well, sometimes it's like you get more out of someone not saying anything, right? Based on a facial expression more than the words that are coming out of their mouth, right? So this is like kind of the same thing. You just take a look around the apartment and you're kind of like, hmm, okay, okay, I see what's going on here. This guy's desperate for he's money. He's desperate, yeah. He's obsessed with his new boyfriend. He's obsessed. And he's also not too upset about the death of his wife, who remained pretty loyal to him. Yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, listen, right now, if I was one of the detectives, I would I would have I would think right now it's either Dean or was it Cranston or, or Karsten Karsten. OK, I'm sorry. Yes. So it's either okay. Karsten or it's Dean. It's one or the other. Yeah. I mean, listen, Karsten knows that they have money. There's still money there on the table here. So right. one of them have done it. So next, the detectives headed over to where Karsten was staying, the Marina Towers with a friend. Karsten knew that they were on their way because Dean had called him to warn him about it. When they arrived, they asked the man the same question that they asked Dean. What had he been doing on the night of the 28th? Carson said that he had been at his friend's apartment for most of the day. And just an aside, once Dean had left his family, things were very tumultuous between him and Karsten. So Dean had moved out of his house and began renting an apartment on Ohio Street. And this meant that they had to sell the apartment that he had bought for Karsten and himself. So Karsten had moved in with him, but the fighting got really bad. In December of 1991, Karsten's going to move out and begin living with friends, basically couch surfing until his friend at the Marina Towers began letting him stay there for quite some time. He'd been there for about eight months. So this makes all the pictures in Dean's apartment all the more strange because Carson hadn't been there for a very long time. So Carson said he was alone for most of the day and eventually went over to Dean Old's apartment to ask to borrow his car. And this is something that he frequently did. Carson claimed later that while the police were questioning him, he got the feeling that they suspected him of committing the murder, so he opted to stop the informal interview and obtain counsel. Now, as you can imagine, this case blew up. The drama of it all. A prominent attorney was having an affair with an attractive young German man and had spent millions on him. His wife, having enough, divorced him. And she was taking him for all that he was worth based on his unwise prior financial decisions. And she ended up murdered. It was a media sensation. And just like kind of as an aside, after 
police found out about the relationship between Dean and Karsten, they did go back to Dean Old's children and questioned them about their father's relationship with this man, Karsten Hoffer. And that's how the children found out. See, so that sucks, right? Yeah. Because now these kids have been in the dark. Now, granted, like I said earlier, it was good that the you know the wife did not you know the mom did not tell them but to find out through this and like you know after the mom has been murdered and the police are coming to them and asking them questions that sucks it does and but i do think it's still better to find out that way versus a media report where they're going to sensationalize things yeah i know it just makes the it just makes the water a little bit more muddy you know and well it does and after this i mean they already weren't speaking to their father but they were more adamant to never speak to him again because they felt like now not only did their father have a motive but now they had he had more of a motive because this money was also maintaining his lifestyle with his new partner yeah that's true so the police zeroed in their focus on karsten and this is because of what they found at the crime scene at the crime scene which police felt implicated karsten was the following Now, like stated before, this crime scene was horrific. It appeared from the physical evidence that Suzanne had been ambushed quite quickly in her garage. The medical examiner determined that she had been hit with a bat-like object many times on the left side of her head, which implied that the killer was right-handed. There was a lot of rage behind the attack because she was beaten even after her death would have been apparent to the person committing the crime. Her skull was fractured so badly that brain matter was exposed. They had left 15 fractures on Suzanne's skull. I mean, that's a really brutal attack. Yeah. I mean, it is. And it's, it seems really like... Overkill. Yeah. Like, I mean, you already knew you killed somebody. I mean, did you have to continue to just wail on this person while they were dead i mean it's it's bizarre it also shows rage so the person that killed her this isn't just a murder for hire right because that's done quickly and they get out of there it's kind of like a professional interaction personal as cold as that sounds but you're right this is personal so it's it just is a really big key piece of evidence is how intense this attack was I mean, yeah, and I can only think of two people that could have done it. Right. Well, once they had finished looking over the scene, the police theorized that the killer had wrapped the weapon in something and left the property through the backyard. This theory came from the fact that footprints, later to be determined as combat boots, moved from the garage into the backyard and then moved towards the fence. Most likely, the perpetrator hopped the fence to escape the scene. The reason that detectives thought the weapon was wrapped was because the scene was horrifically bloody. And based on the blood evidence, the weapon used to kill Suzanne would have been covered in blood. Yet, there was no blood in the snow, just a small drop on the fence. So it would make sense that the weapon was covered, because it clearly wasn't at the scene. So the killer had taken the weapon with them. The reason why the police believed that Karsten was more likely a suspect than Dean Olds was because Karsten was a fit 24-year-old and Dean Olds was over 60, not in the best physical shape, and an alcoholic. 
and the fence that needed to be hopped was five feet. Oh wow! Yeah, it's. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's definitely not doing that at sixty something years old. Not to uh, you know. Well, and he wasn't in good physical shape. Yeah, not to say that sixty year olds can't be physically fit, but we well, can't hop this fences. Guy, yes, but this guy in particular cannot do that. Yes. Um, especially not after exerting himself as much as he would have had to to commit that crime. Right. I mean, there's a lot of energy spent there doing what he did. Right. And then getting out of there. Now the police had their suspect, they aggressively investigated in that direction. And the media was along with them every step of the way. The media hounded Karsten everywhere he went, most painting him to be the evil other man a young, handsome German model that took advantage of an older, rich man who was obsessed with him. And honestly, when the details came out, it looked bad. It turned out that there had never been a chauffeur business, and Karsten had been the one driving around Hamburg in the expensive cars with other lovers. Yeah, figure that. I mean, it didn't take a, a brain surgeon to figure that one out. And Dean had been paying him a yearly salary of $122,000 to run the business. I mean, this guy was making out pretty good. The police were adamant that it had been Karsten because this divorce meant his lifestyle was, was over. Right. But because there was so much police and media attention around him, the woman that was allowing Karsten to stay with her asked him to leave. Weeks later, the police asked her to talk to Karsten again, but this time to wear a wire. They thought that maybe he would confess to her. The woman agreed, but Karsten did not admit to the crime while they were eating together. A city activist who watched the media's coverage of the murder took pity on Karsten and felt like he was being taken advantage of not only by the police, but the media as well. She believed that this was a witch hunt. And she agreed to let him live with her. Throughout the trial, this woman, Charlotte Newfield, helped guide him through his legal cases. Newfield was a very well-known advocate of the LGBT community. And she believed that the media was turning on Karsten and making him out to be this evil gay lover. When in reality, the relationship between Karsten and Dean Olds was very complicated. And in ways, Karsten could be seen as a victim as well. Now, Karsten told the media, and this is years after the trials and media circus slowed down, that at the time he told police that he and Dean had a tumultuous relationship. He said at times their relationship was wonderful. They would enjoy dinner, a bottle of wine, but that Dean was also manipulative and controlling of him. Sometimes things would get abusive, especially if excessive alcohol was involved. And as we know, as the date of the murder approached, um, so did the increase in intake of alcohol for Dean Olds. Hmm. So that meant that he was probably extremely aggressive. And that does explain why Karsten did move out of the apartment. And many of the couple's acquaintances were interviewed. And they did agree that Karsten did get a lot out of the relationship financially. But it was a sad, abusive codependent relationship it was clear that dean was obsessed with karsten and karsten no longer liked dean or wanted to be with him but he needed his money so he continued the relationship that's so unhealthy and sad oh yeah it is and you have to understand that when dean took karsten on as a boyfriend 
he was 20 years old. He was a baby, you know, and the choices that he's going to make, especially as I mean, let's be honest, he was a he's a desperate man at the time. From the age of 15 to 20, he was living on his own, working three jobs, trying to support himself because he had been abandoned by his family. Here comes this man who's going to give him all the things that he wants. So he's going to say, okay, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. Is he taking advantage of him with the money? Well, now things are a little weird because Dean Olds knew that the show, chauffeur business was kind of like not real. He knew that what he was doing was just financing Karsten's lifestyle, but that was his way of hiding it from his wife, saying that it was a chauffeur business. And then I think later on, Dean Old is going to kind of make it out to be, oh, look, this guy was taking advantage of me. And I think the lines are really blurry here. And I think that the, these two men are just in a very codependent, toxic, and unhealthy relationship because of how they met. And that their their relationship was kind of always built upon this, like, secrecy and dependence on money. Yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying. And I I don't want to say anything that might sound like I don't have compassion for one side or the other. Right. But I just want to say that you're right. It is complicated. And it makes things harder to see the truth, really. I mean, I think the biggest thing here is one wanted... One wanted a relationship with someone younger and, and, and attractive. Right. And the other one was in a place where having a lot of money and being supported would benefit them. Right. Um, I do think, though, that, you know, I think I just think Carson that... should have left once he was able to support himself on his own. Right. But that's not going to happen. See, that, that like, that's unrealistic. Uh, okay. Come on. It's unrealistic. I know. If you were because you wouldn't want to stop that money train. Exactly. I get it. Exactly. You have this lifestyle, and you know yeah. what? Some people out there, and, and and I don't hate on them or anything, but there are people out there that the way they feel about somebody or the abuse that they could suffer, um, the money outweighs that. And there are people out there that once it goes sideways, or or the money stops coming in, then they flip it all around to say that they were abused. They, you know. Um, that they suffered under, uh, you know, on, uh, by the hands of right. of so and so, and that all might be true too. But there is, it, it takes two in a relationship to make things either go great yeah. or bad. I now listening to interviews from both of these men post trials, post after everything's gone down. I I will say that my feelings about them is that they're both very good. At manipulating people. And I think that there's lies to both of their stories. And I think there's truths to both of their stories. I think that they're, I think that Dean Olds met his match in Karsten Hoffer, meaning that they're both, they were both manipulating each other. And they both then tried to manipulate others after their relationship ended and Suzanne Olds got murdered. Yeah, like I think that's like the biggest thing too. Like we're forgetting the fact that someone was murdered here. Yeah. That was innocent in all of this. Yeah. And had and, nothing to do with it. Right. And she, her thing wasn't you betrayed me, you're having an affair. Her thing was you're taking the money that my, that I inherited from my family and that you worked your butt off for away from our children. That was her thing. Yeah. So, and, and she never, um, 
told on Dean about his, like, she never told on her husband about his affair to the children. Oh, and hold on. I just want to add this, too. For any other, for any listeners out there that are on the older side, okay, there, I'm sure that the last thing you want to do after 32 years of marriage is get a divorce. Whether you're a male or female, that is the last thing that you want to do. Unless it's, yeah. you know, I mean, every circumstances are different. I know every it's a case-by-case case thing, but, you know, you don't want to have to get divorced after 32 years and you're in your 60s. I mean, like, that's that's horrible, you know? I mean, unless it It's it hard calls to start it. over. It's hard to start over. It's hard yeah. to gather yourself. You know, where are you when you're 60? Are you, are you retired? Are you still working? What's going on? It's just like, it's a very complicated thing. So you definitely don't want to be doing that. Right. So she, I, what I'm trying to get out of here is that she's, she was just this innocent woman who was just looking out for her family, and that's the last thing she wanted to put her family through. Yes, it's really sad. And um, another thing that Karsten's going to claim is that when Dean was alone and wasted, which was more often than not, and he had to be taken to the hospital as a result of his alcoholism, that Karsten was always the one who um, came to his rescue. So I think either way, however you want to like cut it, it's just a really unhealthy relationship and the two are kind of playing at each other and everyone else around them. So Carson at this point, with the help of Newfield as his advocate, was able to obtain a really powerful defense attorney, Richard Kling. Kling was known for defending John Wayne Gacy in his appeals and was currently working on another case, the defense of Mel Reynolds a Democratic member of the Illinois House of Representatives who was arrested for the sexual assault of an underage campaign worker. So this guy was all about the media. With his lawyer and the advocate in the room, Carson explained to police that he had chosen to move out of the apartment with Dean Olds on Ohio Street because he had begun acting crazy and was continually asking him to kill Suzanne for him. He told one of his friends in Germany that he was moving out and it was for that reason. And Richard Kling said that the man would be willing to testify that Dean Olds was trying to solicit the murder of his ex-wife. See, now that's something to hold over someone's head, right? I mean, that's, I mean, what a, what a request. What? What's going on here? Well, when the detectives asked Dean about these statements, he admitted that, in fact, he had said that to Carson, but it was not the reason that Carson had left. He also admitted that he had jokingly told at least eight other people in his life that he wanted Suzanne dead and joked with them about him paying them to kill her. I don't know if anybody would joke around about that. And even if they did, the other person probably wouldn't, you know, find it funny. Well, yeah, these people confirmed that Dean did say these things to them. However, it wasn't a joke. They took his statements as legitimate solicitations for murder, but they had laughed them off because it was so uncomfortable. And this all perfectly set up Karsten's defense. He had been set up as the perfect scapegoat by Dean who had really hired someone else to do it. Okay. However, the police believed that they had more evidence to support Karsten being responsible for the death of Suzanne. They theorized that he had used Dean's car to drive to the Wilmette home, murder Suzanne, and then drive the car back. The distance from Chicago to Wilmette is 18 miles. 
and at the time of the murder, that would have taken roughly 25 minutes. Karsten said that on the night in question, he had walked the distance from his apartment to Dean's, which is roughly 15 minutes, and got to Dean's Ohio Street location at around 7.30 p.m. He asked to borrow the car, and Dean said that it was okay, and he left only a few minutes after arriving. Karsten did not return the car to Dean Olds until 10 p.m. His whereabouts are unknown during this time and were not disclosed by Karsten. He did add, however, that while he was walking to get the car from where it was parked, he stopped for 10 to 15 minutes to pet someone's dog that had walked by. So, let's just theorize here. By the time everything is said and done, it's most likely that Karsten got into the car at around 8 p.m., the latest. If he committed the murders... It would have taken him 25 to 30 minutes to get to Wilmette. That brings us to 8.30. If he returned the car at 10, that would have meant that he would have had to have left Wilmette at 9.15 to 9.30. You know, because it takes time to walk the keys back up to Dean Old's apartment. So at the very least, there's 45 minutes in which this murder could have taken place. 45 minutes that are unaccounted for while he had a vehicle for transportation at a location that he could have driven to and driven back from. I mean, I think that's ample time to commit a murder. Right. Okay, so before... I have to add one more thing. I forgot. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I forgot one piece of evidence. Crucial to the puzzle. Suzanne's phone records prove that she was alive at 9 p.m. because she spoke to her son on the phone at 9 p.m. So in reality, Carson really had more like 15 to 30 minutes to kill her. And the distance from the house to the apartment was 18 miles. Well, uh, what I'm saying, that already has been accounted oh, okay, in, for okay. the time. Okay, so he only had what? So, so if he was parked outside of her house waiting okay. for her for the opportunity, he had 15 to 30 minutes to ambush her in the garage bludgeon her to death, and then run away. I still think it's possible. Totally. I agree. I mean, you know why? Because if you're in a fit of rage, I mean, listen, one good hit. Your adrenaline. Listen, one well, good hit. Well, she was hit. I know, no, I know that, but one hit, she's on the ground. And then by that point, it, you know, right. 10, 15 minutes, uh, it, even you could be done with that in five minutes. Right. So I just think that it's totally enough time to do the, you know, do, uh, you know commit, the, commit murder. the murder and then just get right back in the car. No, I agree with you. You know what I mean? I don't know. The Emmy could only put her time of death anywhere between 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. And it was just hard to determine because the body was left in a cold garage. So you really couldn't tell the amount of time that had passed. So the blue Ford Taurus that was driven by Karsten that night was tested for DNA. Investigators stated that there were a lot of pieces of DNA that were found in the car meaning many people had driven or been in the car. But there was only three blood drops found in the car, and those blood drops belonged to Suzanne Olds. The drops were located on the front passenger door handle, the driver door handle, and the right lower portion of the back of the driver's seat. Now, this was a vehicle that was purchased by Dean Olds post-divorce. So this was never a vehicle that the couple owned together. Okay. So that was that. The police believed Carson Hoffer was their guy. 
So they arrested him. And because they considered him a flight risk, which, you know, he was because he had he was technically a citizen of Germany. He was only in America on a visa. He was arrested first for writing a bad check. And he was informed that he was then a formal suspect in the murder of Suzanne Olds. Because of these things, he was required to surrender his passport so he wouldn't be a flight risk. This bought the police more time to investigate. The next piece of evidence that the police wanted to bring against Karsten were the footprints. So basically, it had snowed on the 26th, two days prior to the murder. And the only prints that were behind the house were boots that led away from the house and to the fence. From the tread, it was determined that the boots were combat boots. And the police who questioned everyone in Karsten's life heard from many that he had combat boots, which I do want to mention were extremely popular to be worn at the time. So a lot of people wore combat boots. I don't want it to be like it was just him. One friend, though, did state that he had bought a pair of combat boots with Karsten at a payless near the apartment in Karsten was living at at the time. So now we have a lot of circumstantial evidence, but I think it would be best to sum it all up by discussing Karsten's trial, which happened almost a year after his initial arrest. So I'm going to lay out the evidence from the prosecution and the evidence from the defense. Sounds good. This was a media frenzy, this trial. Oh, I bet. (laughs) I bet. So here's the prosecution's evidence against him. He has an extreme motive because he's, losing his lifestyle because Dean Olds no longer has the money that he promised Karsten because the divorce is taking place. He borrowed the car during the time of the murder, a car that had three blood stains that tested positive for Suzanne Olds' blood. Yeah, people have been tried and put away for less evidence than that, yes. most likely. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, he, his time is unaccounted for. He did not say what he was doing during that time. So he does not have an alibi. The car, again, they bring up the fact that Suzanne Olds was never in this car. So there's no reason why her blood should be located in, in the car. It's true. Yeah. The combat boots that he owned were a match of a print for the ones that were made in the snow. They even had a receipt that they obtained from Payless because he paid for them using a credit card. And there was also blood on the fence. So that is how the killer must have escaped. Also, it's totally impossible. Dean could have never physically jumped that fence. And that was something that um, only Karsten could have done. Now, this is a little bit complicated. So bear with me here. The prosecution is going to subpoena a witness, Kevin Murray. Remember I said there was somebody who was also working the chauffeur business? Yeah. That was Kevin Murray. So Kevin Murray was actually from New Jersey. He joined the U.S. Army and was stationed in Germany, and that's when he met Karsten. Okay? So he was supposed to be their partner in this chauffeur business. He claimed for the prosecution that the business was mostly fake And that Dean and Karsten had asked him on several occasions to help them kill Suzanne so the money could keep coming. And he declined both times to help them. That's crazy. Yes. And, you know, to add to like the the courtroom drama of this all, Kevin Murray, Kevin Murray was suffering from 
complications due to the AIDS virus and he was dying. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was actually going through kidney failure. So while he was testifying, he was in a wheelchair with a blanket. He had nurses around him because he was really going to go into kidney failure at any time. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they have to put this guy on the stand through all of this. Yeah. And so the defense is going to have the following claims. They're going to explain that the relationship between Olds and Carson was complicated and extremely abusive. And they bring up Carson's past and what his life was like. There was a lot of DNA evidence collected from the car. However, only the blood was tested. So they're not disputing the fact that the blood was found in the car. They're saying, why didn't police test everything? They're, yeah. they're doing a good job of creating reasonable doubt. They're basically saying, you zeroed in on the defendant and you didn't look anywhere else. Why didn't you at least test everything? I guess because they probably felt that, I mean, Suzanne's blood that was in the car that she'd never been in before was enough to maybe just kind of implicate him. Right, right. I mean, really, I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. I mean, the other DNA in the car, I mean, if the car was used and then bought afterwards, there's other people's DNA, like you mentioned, in the car already. Right. So, I mean, what are they going to go tap? Like, I don't know. I just think that, like, that the blood is really, in my opinion, something that just is, like, the only weird thing in there. Well, maybe they're trying to imply that if her time of death is between 9 and 10, could somebody have gotten out there after Carson returned the car? I don't think so. They're just, all they have to do is create reasonable doubt. Right, of course. That's all they have to do. Then they talked about the prints. Many boots have a similar tread. The Payless tread comes close to the prints that were found at the scene, but they're not exact. Also, the prints at the scene were determined to be a size 13, but Hoffer and the shoes that he bought at Payless were a size 11. Okay. However, the size 11 couldn't be found because Hoffer had thrown them out. Thrown them out. Thrown them out. Right. He throws them out. New shoes. He throws them out. I wonder why. The defense accused Kevin Murray of being the killer. This poor man who's dying on the stand. Stated that this was... Basically, a planned operation. So now the defense is going to take on the belief that Dean Olds and Carson Hoffer are going to solicit Kevin Murray to kill Suzanne Olds. And they said, wasn't this an operation called Amadeus Mozart? And that they were supposed to have given Murray $30,000 and a plane ticket to the United States. And, of course, Murray is going to completely deny this. Um, it's also important to know that Murray had only been sick for five months. And when he started going into kidney failure was when he realized that he was um, positive for HIV. He had not known that. So his health had rapidly decreased in the past five months. So when this murder took place, he had not been diagnosed. So he was, you know in everyone's mind, still healthy person. So it's not like he was dying and they asked him. Right. So, I was, I was going to say, I mean, if that was the plan then I could, you know, yeah. Okay. But, but again, Kevin Murray was also a very inconsistent witness, but I think that's also because he, this poor man was dying. Yeah. Um, 
so I think it was just an easy thing to do to kind of turn it on someone. And that's what they had tried to do. But after both sides gave their closing arguments, it was completely up to the jury. Five believed that Carson Hoffer was innocent and they would not budge. So the other side did. And he was found not guilty of first degree murder because reasonable doubt was created. Oh, my God. Okay. Carson stayed in America for about another year, but was deported because he had overstayed the time of his visa. After this trial came back as a non-guilty verdict, the investigation was halted. They just stopped. And this is strange because I felt like they went after Karsten so hard and they so aggressively investigated this murder to come back with a non-guilty and they were just like, okay, well, we're done. And what I find weird about that is that part of the prosecution's case, a massive part of it, was that Dean Olds solicited or kind of talked Carson Hoffer into murdering his ex-wife. So at the very least, you would have thought that the Cook County prosecutors would have charged Dean Olds with solicitation of first degree murder, but they didn't. It is. I I do find that bizarre. I do. It's very strange. You would think that they would try to come after him, you know, after you know, um the not you know not guilty plea to the other uh from the other guy right but, there's no way they even argued that Dean Olds was a crazy big part of the reason why Suzanne was murdered so i just think it's mind-boggling as to why he was not arrested see that really pissed me off because this woman did not deserve to die okay and in such a brutal in such a brutal fashion it's just um I, I don't know. There's there's no justice here. Well, and the there's fact none. that they went so aggressively after Karsten. You're not even going to arrest Dean Olds? They should. Well, Suzanne Olds' children were not going to allow the story to stop there. After their mother's death, they took up the suit against their father for what he had taken from the family's estate to give to Karsten and what he had spent on himself. They continued to fight her battle for what their mother They continued to fight her battle. They were fighting for what their mother thought was right. His children sued him for the $3 million that he spent and the money that he was spending throughout the time the investigation and trial was taking place. Throughout this whole time, he was still sending money to Karsten. Wait, after? You mean after? The murder. The murder. 100%. Oh, my God. Okay. He he was Dean Olds until his dying day in 2011, still sending money to, to Karsten. That's, that's, that's mind-boggling. Yes. It really is. Okay, so, but I'm getting too ahead of myself here. It was also a wrongful death claim. So it's kind of like, people always know it when you relate it to this, the O.J. Simpson case, where... Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown's family in civil court sued O.J. Simpson for the death of their children. Okay. And he was found guilty in civil court of the murder. They're going to do the same thing here. They want to find their father and Karsten guilty of the murder of their mother in civil court. And the reason for this is 
you cannot financially benefit from a murder. So if they're found guilty in civil court, then Dean Olds is not going to get any of his wife's money. Okay. And that's the reason why the family is doing this. So during this civil court case, Dean Olds chose to defend himself. And this was very uncomfortable because since their mother's murder, his children had not spoken to him because they felt that he was responsible. And he had tried to call them over and over and over again, leave voicemails on their messages, but they just never responded to him. And the case that was brought against him was that he had murdered their mother or had solicited the murder of their mother through Karsten and was getting her money, the rest of the estate. And it was not legal to profit from a murder. It was clear from the beginning that acting as his own lawyer was not smart for Dean Olds. He was in over his head and still, quite clearly, an alcoholic. The result of the trial was that Dean Olds was entitled to half of the family's estate. Wow, okay. However, the judge ruled that he chose to spend his half on Carson Hoffer. Nice. Therefore, the rest of the estate was to go to the three children. Carson and Dean were found responsible the death of Suzanne Olds in the civil court case. Dean Olds had to sell what was in the home and sell the house itself and his children would get the proceeds. The only thing he was allowed to keep were his clothes and the car because it had been acquired after the separation. And you see what I'm saying? Like, was it like, was this whole thing worth it? I mean, even, you know, well, like, people I know a, are, are not thinking. I know, clearly. I know, I know, I know. I, I guess I'm trying to like, I always do this. I keep doing this. I, I'm not that I'm not this way, so I can't relate. But it's just um, I'm just so aggravated that they found these people not guilty of, of you know, first degree murder. Right. But in a civil but in civil court, they were found guilty of a wrongful death. Right. Right. So it's just like, you know, you're walking around. You know what? If anything, you're walking around and everybody knows that you either did, either you had a hand in killing her or you did it yourself. Either way, you're walking around and you're a murderer because that's, that's what's going on here. Right. You know what I mean? That he did it. So it's just like walk around and just let everybody know that you're a murderer. Well, that's why after the trial, the media was still kind of like all over this sensational story. And Dean, it seemed, kept giving them material to work with. According to what one worker told the Wilmette police, one morning before he had been ordered to vacate his house, he had gone to a hardware store. Once there, he told the employee that he wanted to clean his garage floor. The man told him to be careful because, as Dean had stated, there was no ventilation in the garage and he had bought torch glow and torch glow fuel eight cans to be exact so dean told him that there was a lot of oil and blood on the floor and that he needed that much to clean it up but the reason the employee called the police was because he knew that was a lot of torch glow and he also knew it could be used as an accelerant and he was familiar with the story so he thought that maybe Dean was going to try and burn the house down. Oh, wow. Okay. See, I didn't even, I didn't even think like that. Because well, he's yeah. not going to get the profits of this house. Right. Just burn it down. Right. Yeah. 
So the police went to Dean's house and actually removed the accelerant that he had purchased. Wow. But the media was there the whole watching the whole thing. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yeah. So later on, the police had to go to the house again because Dean was refusing to leave. It was past the date when he had to vacate the premises and he was still standing in the driveway refusing to leave. The police could not force him off the premises, so the next best thing they could do was take his weapons. They also informed his children that he had a rifle that they took away. They also informed his children that if they wanted him to leave, they were going to have to go the legal route. They couldn't physically force him out. However, things would not have to go that far. With media cameras pointed at him, Dean Olds chose to leave his house. He left with all the clothes that he had and he drove to the police station and asked if there was a charitable place for him to go, basically claiming that he wanted a homeless shelter because he had no money. But the police informed him that he didn't meet the legal requirements for a homeless shelter. In fact, just the day before, he had sent Carson Hoffer money. That's unbelievable. For the next few days, he just drove around the North Shore of Chicago and the media followed him everywhere as he ate fast food and slept in his car. Eventually, he does file a complaint against the media because they are, were hounding him. Eventually, he's going to settle in Laguna Beach in an apartment where he still has pictures of Karsten Hoffer, who he's in, occasionally in contact with, all over. His children never spoke to him again. He passed away in 2011. His children and their families have stated that the only solace they have is the fact that within the civil court suit, the judge determined that their father and Karsten had been responsible for the death of their mother. The children still believe that their father had hidden the money in an offshore account, and that's what he was living on for all of those years and was the money that he was still giving to Karsten. They might not be wrong. They might not be wrong about that. I mean, because, I mean, if this guy's not working or doing anything, where, how is he living? Yeah. Well, I mean, he was, um, some of the retirement accounts were given to him and also, I mean, social security. Right. But I mean, if you're still living in Laguna Beach in an apartment. in a luxury apartment. So, I mean, there has to be something going on here. He he actually, come on. He had money somewhere. Yes, he did. I, I believe that that is true as well. And I feel bad for those children that their mother was taken from them and that, You know, it could divorces are contentious, especially when there's a lot of money involved. And I wish it could have just played out and that would have been the end of the story. But I think this is also one of those things where when people are going through pretty vicious and contentious divorces, people have a reason to be scared because, like you've said, people have killed for less. So, yeah, uh, it's it's scary sometimes. And it's it's crazy how it. A divorce is common, which is sad, but it is that something that happens sometimes in people's lives can turn deadly. It's terrifying. Yeah, no, it is. All right. So before we go, we do want to just thank our new patrons who have joined our Patreon page. We appreciate you guys so much and thank you for joining the family. We hope you're enjoying all the 40 bonus episodes that we have up for you. So we just want to give a big thank you to Heather Phillips. Nicole M. Newman, Yasmin Barado Klemstad, Mallory Robinson, Anthony edited his pledge from $5 to 10, and Julie Eason edited her pledge from $10 to 20. So thank you guys both for that. Leslie Heinrich, 
Michelle Padilla, Poppy Gale, Marwa Ali, Taylor Chimney, Taylor Chaume, Michelle Mercier, Mary Beth, Nicole Franklin, Sarah, Emily Solmale, Heather Crow, Mackenzie, Christian Guerra, Natasha, Caitlin Dickard, Miss Jessica Darling is donating $20. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And Molly Adams. And if you guys want to join Patreon page and get our 40 bonus episodes, you can do that at patreon.com slash true crime couple. Thank you guys. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye guys. Bye.